This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, I'm joined by Ari Paul, co-founder and chief investment officer of Block Tower, a crypto hedge fund started in 2017. Before founding Block Tower, Ari spent time at the University of Chicago Endowment and before that at Susquehanna as a derivatives trader. Ari has been an active voice in the crypto space for years now, including on the original Hash Power series. With Block Tower being one of the original crypto funds, Ari is an ideal guest to talk about the evolution of crypto markets and where we are today. Ari, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. All right. When I think of a derivatives trader at Susquehanna, I think of math, comp, science, PhDs, and this isn't pejorative, but how does a political science major end up on a desk at Susquehanna? I got into trading in 2006. That was when I was hired by Sega, leaving college. And at the time, the trading industry, I would say, was mid-transition from discretionary screen trading to being almost entirely algo on individual decisions for, say, option trading. And by individual sense, I mean like literally an individual trade. I mean, yes, you still have humans making discretionary decisions around how to manage risk and how to think about skewing kurtosis, but automated option market making really exploded in volume and size and as a percentage of all volume while I was at SICK. We went from like jump trading, for example, being an early pioneer at shifting to that model to by the time I left SIG in 2010, it had just grown dramatically as a percentage of the market. One of my first days, the head of the desk, maybe I asked the question, something very similar. Should I be studying comp size? Should I be studying advanced math? And the answer was definitely that's the way trading's headed. Absolutely a larger percentage of people at a trading firm like SIG are becoming the PhDs over time. But the management said was that's always going to be a somewhat commoditized skill and the human element really understanding market making in more of the conceptual intellectual side is always going to be a differentiator. And so it's more about the transition in the formulation of the team. So where you used to have, say, eight screen traders and then two technologists backing them up, and maybe one quant, it's kind of flipped. Now you've got two more intuition-based traders, and they're backed by a team of five quants and five technologists. It was something that was part of my thinking where my skill set and personality is probably not the ideal one to be a short-term trader as a career. I started almost immediately gravitating towards longer-term investing, which of course requires much, much more knowledge. The trading, like Sig's model was, we hire 22-year-olds out of college. We don't want people with trading experience or investing experience. We don't want people who know finance. We don't want people who think they understand the industry. We want kids who are really smart game players. And we want to teach them how to play the game as we see it. And that's kind of it. And for me, I was much more drawn to the conceptual, the intellectual. And what the world told me was, you have no business doing that, Ari. You're a 23-year-old kid who doesn't know the industries, doesn't know the businesses, doesn't know anything. And I took that to heart and fully believed it. I got a CFA charter. I got an MBA. And then I became an investor at the UChicago Endowment. 
basically over the next decade, I learned how to be an investor from a bunch of different angles, both formal education, as well as just practicing with colleagues and spending a lot of time with fund managers. So I'm definitely much more drawn to the long-term conceptual side. We started in trade fire around the same time. We went through the financial crisis. And I think when I heard about Bitcoin coming out of 08, I had a very similar response that you did. Reserve currencies are backed by military forces, maybe stable reserves like a gold. But even that to me was like, you need a military to be a currency. I've definitely seen great investors extremely skeptical and dismissive of crypto. How has your process changed in the thinking of that as TradeFi is trying to... I think we've entered the phase of you can't ignore it anymore. How have you seen their response to it? I think with any new technology, it goes through very different phases. When Warren Buffett invested in Apple, I don't know when it was, five years ago, it was kind of a big deal to Buffett fans because he had said he basically won't invest in tech because he doesn't understand it. And he explained that Apple's not a tech company. Well, Apple was a tech company at some point in its history. They were innovating on tech. You did need to understand the computer industry and things to think about if they'd be competitive in their first decade. But today, I would firmly agree with Buffett that it's not a tech company at its heart. It is a consumer brand company, a luxury good company. We can debate this, but they're certainly not primarily innovating on tech. That's not what drives the bottom line year to year. So I think that's true of basically investing in all technologies and human history that in the earliest stages you are underwriting the tech. And it's very hard to do that without confidence in the tech. Bitcoin for the world, and for me, when I first saw it, and for most people when they first see it, okay, here's a crazy new technology. How do we trust that it works? And it's very foreign to most TradFi investors because it's uh, types of technology they've just never encountered before. Even technologists, even VCs that focus on technology aren't used to focusing on database structure, for example, or network engineering. These are areas of science or computer science that have rarely been competitive differentiators on the investment side. And then cryptography, of course, is almost novel in the investment world. Struggle to think of companies where understanding cryptography was critical to underwriting the company. I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions, but certainly it's very rare. The technologies and the cryptography and the network engineering and the game theory were all kind of new and weird and crazy, and investors didn't know how to underwrite them. For me, I had to learn a little bit about cryptography, a little bit about network engine. I had to learn a little bit about all of these tech areas. I never became a deep expert in any of them, but I had to learn enough to understand the practical implications, to understand what I was betting on. And that took me, call it a year of full-time work, basically a year of eight-hour days to understand enough about these tech areas that, again, even tech investors typically are not familiar with. So there's a learning curve, a very sharp one. I think what changed is when I used to give presentations on Bitcoin in 2017 to say a CFA group, I would get questions about nonces. It's funny, I haven't used the word nonce, I think in two years. I used to use it in almost every speech because it's a core component to understanding how Bitcoin works as a technology. And in 2017, an investor at a pension who was thinking about crypto, they felt they needed to understand the technology to underwrite the investment. Today, no one cares about nonsense. No one asks the question. No one wants to hear the answer because it's kind of like if you and I were debating, is Apple a good buy here? We're probably not talking about chip design. We're probably not talking about really deep technical questions in around how they're designing the chip in an iPhone. We can both just kind of take it for granted. Basically, unless someone tells us there's a problem with the tech, we just kind of take for granted that they have industry expert engineers. They say they have certain specifications. 
the third party tests those, we kind of believe it. An even simpler example is the car. If we're valuing a traditional car company making non-electric cars, we're not going to be talking about carburetors or combustion engines. We're not going to be talking about the engineering of combusting gasoline for fuel. We take it all for granted. Investing in a car company today is mostly not a tech investment. Again, maybe there's an exception with electric vehicles now and things like that. But so what changed is Bitcoin got to a level of psychological maturity that was largely about empirical data. So how do investors get to this point where we can kind of ignore the tech? It's empirical. We don't think too hard about the tech of a car because they work and they've worked for decade after decade and the tech doesn't change that much. Again, for traditional cars, a car today looks pretty similar to a car 30 years ago. Bitcoin, the fact that it has been operating, that a block has been produced basically every 10 minutes now for 11 plus years, and that there have been billions of dollars at stake now for four plus years without a critical bug or a single protocol level loss, all of that psychologically gives investors the comfort to not worry about the tech. I used to get asked constantly, how are you confident this protocol won't simply stop working tomorrow? How are you confident that $100 million of Bitcoin on the protocol won't just be stolen? People don't ask the question anymore, not because they understand the answer, but because empirically they don't have to. So I think that's the transition. Bitcoin has become perceived to be at least a financial asset, not an engineering project anymore. Does that concern you? The question I've had about this is like, if you think about technology like a car in that example, when people first get cars, they're tinkering around with, they're playing with, they're taking the cowling off. You see the engine, you see it all. And that's kind of the first adopters. But that's also where you get a lot of the greatest innovation from. Carol Shelby making an impact on Ford by being the hobbyist, showing the companies how to make stuff better. And so I just wonder, do you think that cryptocurrency is in that state where like, if the people step away from it, they have an appreciation? Like, How critical is that learning curve to having the conviction to own it for the long term? I'll try to answer from two angles. So I don't see it as a problem for innovation, at least not right now, because the people who are doing the innovating are the more air quotes crypto native, and they are passionate about this technology. They are in the weeds and they can't avoid it because for Bitcoin, someone can buy it through fidelity. They never need to touch the physical asset, air quotes physical, of course, it's not physical, but they never need to interact with the protocol directly. They don't need to run a full node. They don't need to worry about the technology at all. There are trusted intermediaries and very trusted. We're talking about US-based broker-dealers, regulated custodians, regulated banks like Fidelity that will serve as your trusted intermediary. And they handle all aspects of that for you. And similar to how so much of the world works, we just trust intermediaries for good reason. Same way we trust doctors. I don't know everything about the medicine that's prescribed to me. I'm trusting that the doctors know what they're doing. But with the more novel things, every new project, every new idea in crypto goes through that phase where it is an engineering project, where the people who are interested in it, building it, and the early users are the hobbyists. Most people working on crypto are working on that stuff. Most people who think of themselves as in crypto are using those extremely new products that are very buggy, where we're talking about those bugs constantly in a very practical sense, which naturally leads to an understanding of the tech and thinking about how do we fix these bugs? And is that a new company? Is that a new product? Is that a new protocol? From the financial angle, There's no lack of capital. So VC funds have raised more money to do early stage crypto investing in the last year than the entire VC industry as a whole 30 years ago. I don't have exact numbers, but there's been at least $4 billion of VC capital raised to allocate to early stage crypto. That is a staggering amount. So there's certainly no shortage of capital to finance these innovators and engineers and builders. The one place where it does worry me, and I try to be a public voice of caution about this, is These are not financial assets. There is a protocol behind them. 
And in all cases, a fairly new protocol. Even in Bitcoin's case, we're looking at a 12-year-old protocol, even though it is empirically tested for 12 years and with now hundreds of billions of dollars at stake and all of that, it is still a work of engineering that is still relatively new and relatively untested. And of course, everything beyond Bitcoin is much newer, much more nascent. Almost everything's a work in progress. So Ethereum explicitly is still in its basically alpha. Ethereum intends to become proof of stake. It intends to radically transform its engineering and it releases lots of new code every year. And new code can be buggy. So something that I publicly caution people about is if you have an asset like Ethereum that can feel like a financial asset. I mean, there's CME Ethereum futures and we have ETNs and it's a financial product and it trades like a financial product. But there is a very real risk that the next time Ethereum hard forks and launches brand new code, that there could be a critical bug that shuts down the network. And that applies to everything in crypto, by the way. It applies more to newer projects that are less tested, but it applies to everything. If you get over the technological side of it and you say, okay, this is being used, so I accept it. I think the next place to go is how you think about it from a valuation standpoint. We both admire Seth Klarman. Seth has not said nice things about crypto. He's called it digital tulips. He recently called it trading sardines based on this analogy of people are collecting sardines. And he said, why are you eating that? Those are my trading sardines. And so you have these people that are from value investing, which is probably the polar opposite of thinking about crypto. How do you think about setting a valuation for something, even though maybe technologically you're okay with it? How do you think of there's a bid for this? I just go to kind of first principles, basic investing 101, economic thinking on this. Different crypto assets are very different things economically. So as an example, an ETF is a wrapper. We have a gold ETF, we have bond ETFs, we have real estate ETFs. So it doesn't make sense to economically ask, what is an ETF? It's a wrapper. And so the valuation of an ETF is the valuation of the underlying assets. One place where that's incredibly clear is, say, NFTs. People use the term NFTs, and it's fine. I'm not complaining about this. Colloquially, NFTs have become synonymous with art in crypto. But the reality is that an NFT is just a wrapper, and it can house anything, any type of intellectual property. It can be an art. It can be a digital asset in gaming. It can be a real estate title. It can be anything. It can either be a title to a real-world asset like a house, or it can be a digital native asset where it's a bearer instrument. Ownership of this NFT means you own some digital item that can be used in a game. An NFT can house cryptocurrencies, for example. I can wrap Bitcoin as an NFT on Ethereum, in which case the way to model that NFT is it's basically a derivative of Bitcoin, maybe with some added risks to it. To give you more specific answers... I think of Bitcoin as the closest analogy is as a commodity. It's not equity. It doesn't produce cash flows. It's non-yielding. In Buffett's mental model, it absolutely makes sense to say it's not an investment the same way Buffett says that gold is not an investment. It basically, in the truest value investing sense, most cryptocurrencies are not investments. They are commodities, and that means inherently it's speculation about what someone else will someday pay. That doesn't mean they're valueless. Saying that gold is not an investment, it's a speculative commodity, doesn't mean it has zero value. But it does mean that you can't value it based on cash flows. So most of the market cap of the crypto ecosystem today is in assets that are commodity-like, things like Bitcoin. And the way I value Bitcoin is I say, what is the value proposition? Why would someone want to own it other than just pure short-term speculation? And there's a few possible answers to this. The only one that to me makes sense to justify a multi-hundred billion valuation, let alone multiple trillions, is this. The best analogy I have is to the offshore banking system, which currently houses very roughly, call it 30 trillion. 
Some of that is obviously illegal, but much of it, the majority of it is legal. And every Fortune 500 company in the world in some way makes use of it. Why does Amazon have tons of capital in the offshore banking system? Because if they didn't, if all of Amazon's assets were in a single, we're say with JP Morgan in New York, then a single judge could freeze that bank account pre-trial and Amazon would be insolvent the next day. They couldn't make payroll. They couldn't pay their providers. So Amazon is not trying to evade the law, presumably, assuming that all laws will be applied to them, that they have to be a law-abiding global corporate citizen. But the way our legal system works, being law-abiding doesn't mean you don't have your assets frozen. Your assets can be frozen pre-trial. And so Amazon says to themselves, we at least want our day in court. And we want our day not just with one judge in court. We want an appeals process. We know that some New York state judge might try to free our assets. And we then need to be able to continue operating our business and making payroll and paying service providers while we go through potentially a five-year appeals process. So we need to have capital in legal jurisdictions around the world so that no one judge can properly or improperly shut us down as a business. I mean, imagine if a single judge could just literally snap their fingers and shut down Amazon. Obviously, an untenable situation. So wealthy people around the world, including law-abiding ones, as well as every giant company in the world, make use of offshore banking because they want some level of censorship and seizure resistance on their capital, even being fully legal. My mental model for Bitcoin, this is oversimplified, but I think it captures 90% of the idea here and 90% of the value, is to ask this question. If everyone in the world, every middle class, every poor person, every rich person could easily have the equivalent of a Swiss bank account that at least ensured they could go through a full five-year appeals process, how much capital would they want to allocate to that? And assuming this was frictionless and costless to do, so like an app on your phone. And if they did that, so let's say we assume the demand for that, I think a reasonable assumption would be something like $100 trillion of demand for that service. So then the next question is, what's the profit margin? If people demand $100 trillion of exposure to that censorship and seizure resistance, what does that mean for the price of Bitcoin? Well, it doesn't imply a price. It implies a market cap. So you don't care about the price per Bitcoin if you're using Bitcoin to store your wealth in a form that is censorship and seizure resistant. What you care about is basically purchasing power or dollar value of that Bitcoin. So what that means is, If you're a billionaire who wants to put $100 million into this offshore Swiss bank, you're going to buy $100 million of Bitcoin regardless of the price. And so my mental model is to work backwards from the addressable market of demand. And to put this in equity terms, it's as though the profit margin is 100%. If I want a dollar of seizure resistance, I have to buy a dollar of Bitcoin, and that dollar is then reflected in the Bitcoin market cap. If I'm right that the addressable market for this service is $100 And if Bitcoin, let's say, captures 70% of that, these are two giant ifs, of course, but just it's useful to flesh out the variables. If Bitcoin were to capture 70% of that, then we would expect at maturity, Bitcoin to have a $70 trillion market cap. We could then try to work backwards and say, maybe that happens over 30 years and we apply some discount rate and then you end up with the present value. On the seizure and censorship resistance, we both come from backgrounds where families spread oppression to get us here. And so I think about that, about what would happen if there was a currency in a regime where a family could flee and keep their wealth. But the other side I've thought about is that when a military overthrows a government, I remember when the Taliban taking back Afghanistan and they were talking about the money. And this is a great learning from your swift lesson of like, how does the Fed actually do this? And they're like, where is the 20, 30 billion dollars? And they're like, it's in the New York Fed and they just shut it off. And so how do you think about if you truly had censorship-resistant money, 
that the power of the U.S. government to stop bad actors or to stop a regime fades away because they could use that same power. Certainly, this almost has to produce very serious ongoing tensions between governments around the world and the crypto space because every government around the world wants to maintain both their ability to print money, seniority rights. There's nothing more attractive than the ability to print your own money. Everyone in the world would love to be able to do it. Every government that can do it does. To my knowledge, no government in history has ever voluntarily given up seniority rights. It happens when currencies fail. So Ecuador pegs to the dollar or El Salvador pegs to the dollar because their citizenry in the world has lost confidence in their central bank. But no country has ever done it on purpose, to my knowledge. And if there's an exception, I'm curious, I'd love to hear it, but that probably proves the rule that it's so rare. So I do not expect countries to embrace cryptocurrencies as potential competitors to fiat and as stores of value. So far, we haven't seen that much pushback from countries because crypto hasn't yet seriously challenged central bank currency. In 2017, there was a congressional hearing about this where some of the Fed were testifying before Congress and they got asked, I forget who it was on the stand, but one of the Federal Reserve members got asked a question point blank from a congressman and they said, is Bitcoin influencing basically dollar exchange rates or US monetary policy or inflation? Is it having any impact on your world as a central banker in the US? And the central banker's answer was not yet. Basically, Bitcoin wasn't yet big enough to be noticeable in any of those macro variables. But the central bankers are paying attention to this. They are thinking in terms of this being a when, not if problem. And how it plays out, I was a poli-sci major, as you noted. I do enjoy thinking about this kind of thing, although I won't claim to be a political expert or anything. I do try to follow the political winds very closely as a crypto investor, because obviously regulation and legislation does matter a lot. I'm not putting myself forward as a political expert. Here's how it's playing out right now, and then I'll say how I think it will play out. Right now, the countries with the most financially oppressive regimes are unsurprisingly generally the strictest with cryptocurrency. So I publicly said five years ago that I thought within the next five years, China will launch a CBDC, which they had publicly said, by the way. It wasn't exactly a prediction. It was more like just saying, this is what they're saying they're going to do, and I think they actually will. After they do that, they're very likely to ban anything that is a serious competitor to their CBDC. That's Bitcoin, but it also is anything their citizenry are using to evade the CBDC total power that it gives the central government. I think they're going to ban cash. Here's a prediction. In five years, if you go to China, you will not be able to spend cash in any form almost anywhere. I have no inside knowledge on that. That just follows logically. And it fits with everything the ruling party has ever done in terms of wanting to exercise control once it's proven to do so. One interesting question is why China hasn't been more aggressive banning Bitcoin. For the last five years, every year at some point, there's been a headline, China bans Bitcoin. Why do they keep banning it? And why don't they ever really ban it? Because even today, Bitcoin's not really banned in China. You still have many, many people trading it. You still have some mining. And China could shut it down much closer to 100%. They haven't because it actually isn't much of a competitor because people are not really using Bitcoin en masse, for example, to evade capital controls. They have other easier avenues. There are other routes that the elites in China use to evade capital controls. Bitcoin is in their toolkit, but it's a relatively minor one. As long as most people are using fiat, for example, criminals who want to do private transactions, they're mostly not using Bitcoin. They're using cash because cash is much, much more anonymous than Bitcoin. And they're more familiar with cash. There's an element of that too. But basically, if criminals worldwide, when they wanted to evade law enforcement, were using something like Bitcoin or a privacy coin like a Monero or Zcash, I think you would see law enforcement and legislators much more aggressively going after it. But I spent a lot of effort recently, for example, trying to figure out why has Tether 
been allowed to continue to exist. Tether violates a huge number of laws globally. It's been in the crosshairs of global regulators and legislators for at least four years. It's at a scale that matters. Very roughly, Tether is something like $90 billion today. $90 billion is big. That's bigger than many economies, and that's big enough for even the U.S. Central Bank to care about as a possible money laundering conduit. So why is Tether allowed to exist? Because I think they're effectively a honeypot. What I mean by that is they cooperate with law enforcement. They cooperate with the governments of the world. The DOJ and the equivalent in Europe and in Asia, they don't view Tether as a problem or as a threat. When a criminal uses Tether, they go to Tether and they say, give us all the information you have on this suspect transaction, and Tether turns it over. So why would you shut it down if it isn't making your life harder? Basically, I don't think the Department of Justice believes that Tether is enabling criminals. Criminals are using Tether, but the DOJ would rather criminals use Tether than cash. Because when they use Tether, the DOJ just goes to the Tether company and gets a bunch of info on the criminals. When these criminals use cash, the DOJ has nothing. I think this plays out in a very practical sense that If and when crypto ends up actually undercutting central bank monetary policy or Department of Justice law enforcement, you'll see more draconian action. You'll see more aggression. But right now, the people who are banging the drum to regulate crypto, it's not the DOJ. The DOJ says crypto is not a problem for us. We don't think it's enabling criminals. It's the SEC. The SEC is banging the drum. Why? Because their mandate, their power, their kingdom is to regulate basically equity sales, private placements in particular, but the securities world, of course. And in there, what happened was ICOs, initial coin offerings, became as big as equity private placements in end of 2017. In Q4 2017, ICOs were bigger than all other security issuance at the VC stage in America combined. So the SEC looks at that and says, Our kingdom is supposed to be oversight of securities issuances. Half of it is now happening outside of our purview. That's not acceptable. We don't like that. And so they're banging the drum because basically crypto became half of their universe. They couldn't ignore it. Literally, their kingdom is getting cut in half of what they get to oversee. My concrete prediction is that we'll see enforcement and legislation and regulation basically on par, in line with, in parallel with the extent to which crypto is undercutting the authority of the powers of the authorities in question. And the point at which it does it for central bankers is probably something like another 5 to 10x as a rough guess. I don't know of any way to really concretely model this, but Bitcoin at, for example, half a million bucks a coin at a market cap of call it 10 trillion. At that point, it could actually be investors shifting huge amounts of assets out of USD into Bitcoin and back will actually be affecting the US dollar exchange rate. It'll actually be moving the needle when central bankers talk about inflation projections, for example. I don't know exactly how that plays out in financially repressive countries like China. My assumption is they ban it. My hope is that in most of the more freer countries, places that include Singapore and Japan and Korea, that they err on the side of freedom. Yes, that'll mean tools that criminals can make use of. The other side of that sword, the financial freedom, is going to create a hundred, a thousand times as much wealth and prosperity as the increase in criminality. Let's talk about Block Tower. So for context, how large is Block Tower? What type of investments do you guys make? We're a, a roughly a billion dollar asset management firm focused really entirely on cryptocurrency, but doing everything and anything within that. We have a VC franchise. We actually just recently launched under uh, Thomas Klikanis, who's a, a phenomenal young VC. I say young, not super young. I say that actually like what's going on in my head is something we thought about a lot at Block Tower as we think about hiring is 
In our earliest days, we were thinking about hiring seasoned Wall Street TradFi people who looked and felt like super senior professionals. And that was not the right move. Basically, everything in crypto, even an accounting role or an ops role or a legal role is effectively entrepreneurial. Anyone doing anything in crypto is solving novel problems day to day. And yes, they need the the traditional skill sets. We need proper lawyers and proper accountants and proper operations people, but you need them to have an extremely entrepreneurial and flexible mindset. That was a tangent, all of that. My point is our VC lead, Thomas, is a rock star, and we're thrilled that he joined us to lead our franchise. We also have a market-neutral franchise, and that is doing DeFi yield farming, basis trading, capturing uh, spreads on the futures curve and derivative spreads in a market-neutral sense, where we hope it makes money in both up and down markets. I'm personally an investor in it, and I think of it as a risky checking account. Risky in the sense that it is taking operational risk. It is certainly much riskier than a bank checking account. I don't want to mislead anyone. But the risks that it's taking are not beta. It's not taking directional crypto risk. It's taking things like counterparty risk and operational risk. And then lastly, we have a vehicle that is what we launched with and was our only vehicle for three, almost four years. And that is a multi-strat, long-bias discretionary vehicle. The thinking on that was basically, it's. I still think it's too early in cryptocurrency for true benchmarks. This is a question I get asked constantly of what is your benchmark? What is the right benchmark? How should we think? It's so early still in the asset class that I'm not opposed to the concept of benchmarks. And we do certainly use benchmarks both internally and externally to explain, describe, and understand performance. But being slavish to a benchmark, I think, is a huge mistake because a lot of what we're betting on We're betting on what should the benchmark be. And there's such huge differences of opinion in that. There's some smart people in crypto who are very confident in, I'll call it the A16Z mental model. So A16Z is very much investing in crypto in a traditional VC equity framework that we're looking for usage, adoption. We're looking for effectively air quotes revenue, which is kind of on-chain fees, and that we're modeling that as the source of value. And then there's other people who think all of that is nonsense who are also smart people who really think that the source of value that's going to be 99% of the value is basically cryptocurrencies as money, as stores of value where people actually want to hold the asset, not for its utility, but as a store of value. Basically, those two thought processes give you two very different benchmarks. For example, if I was benchmarking myself to one versus the other, I would invest the portfolio very differently. I have opinions, of course, but I want to remain mentally nimble and flexible Let me give you the hypothesis. Imagine if I firmly accepted Bitcoin as a benchmark and I start thinking, you know what? Maybe I think Bitcoin's going to die. I think it's going to be obsolete. I think it's going to be Friendster. It's going to get replaced by, let's just say hypothetically, Ethereum. Well, if in 10 years, Ethereum is a $10 trillion asset and Bitcoin has fallen to zero, the fact that I beat Bitcoin, no one's going to care or be impressed by that. If I generated 5% alpha on Bitcoin a year in that scenario, no one's happy. I'm not happy. My investors aren't happy. I'm very reluctant to basically adopt a benchmark as the starting point of an investment strategy in crypto. With all that said, we certainly do think and look at benchmarks on a much shorter term timeframe. We do judge ourselves against them. There's a lot there to unpack. I guess as someone who hated benchmarks, because there's lots of bad benchmark design and it does lead to very perverse incentives. I think one of the only questions that usually comes out with benchmarks is as an investor in Block Tower, how do I know if it was a good year or a bad year? Did Ari do a good job? Did he do a bad job relative to the risk he took? I guess one place to start would be talking to other hedge fund managers. One of the questions I love getting into is the separation between alpha and beta. And when they're thinking about paying their employees, when they're thinking about exposure, if the client got a lot of beta exposure, they're paying high fees for it. How do you think about separating alpha from beta at Block Tower? 
we certainly put a lot of thought into this, even just internally in terms of, I, of course, am constantly trying to assess my own skill, but also that of my team and of any portfolio we build. And you're right, of course, investors want to know and deserve to know how we performed. And we want to provide as much clarity on that. We at least want to share transparently our thinking on it. I mean, the worst case scenario in my head is that I think that I did a good job and our investors disagree because that suggests at a minimum that there was a miscommunication. And that has happened on very rare occasion. I try to be extremely transparent around this kind of stuff to avoid anything like that. But I'll give you an example. Let's say hypothetically, we're running a beta one crypto strategy. If all of crypto is down 80%, and we're down 50% in that vehicle. If an investor is upset, it means they didn't understand what they were investing in. And I do everything in my power to avoid that. If I'm pitching a vehicle like that to an investor, I literally will say these exact words. If crypto is down 80% and this vehicle is down 80%, that should be your base case. We, of course, would hope to add alpha. If you would be shocked and dismayed by that outcome, this vehicle is not the right one for you. We expect to take 100% beta exposure. So I think the answer to this is vehicle specific. You can structure a vehicle to be zero beta, 100% beta. You can take different sets of risks. And to me, it's really just about communicating that as clearly and transparently as we can to investors and being honest about it with to ourselves, of course. So something I think about, to me, risk and reward are inextricably linked. One of the biggest debates I have with TradFi people, and I had this, by the way, before Block Tower, when I was just in the TradFi world doing some risk management, sometimes investors will say things like, what is your target return? I always push back on that question, including when I was at UChicago. And when we were looking at investing in a TradFi manager and they would say, our target return is X, I would always cringe a little. And I wouldn't fault them for that because most investors want to hear that. So I understand that a really smart investor might still say that because that's what they think we want to hear. But I always cringed at it because I believe it's impossible to target a return. I think you can only target risk. And I think the sensible way to approach investing is to target a risk level and then maximize return for a given level of risk. And I think that's the right thought process in every way, including the right thought process to achieve happy outcomes. The problem with targeting return is it leads to extremely perverse incentives. Basically, if you're targeting 25% return, let's say, then when the opportunity set is the best, you're going to take the least risk because you say, I'm hitting my 25% nut without having to take much risk. That's great. And when the opportunity set is the weakest, when it's hard to earn 10%, working your hardest, doing everything you can, then you're incentivized to be levering up, to be taking more risk at the worst possible times. I'll try to give as clear an answer as I can, keeping in mind this is vehicle specific. I judge us really based on three benchmarks. One, we do come up with some benchmark for any vehicle we do as best we can, whatever we think is most reasonable. So one is against that benchmark. So if I'm running, for example, a beta one DeFi vehicle, then we're going to come up with a DeFi benchmark. How much did we outperform that benchmark? I say how much, if at all, of course, we always hope we outperform. Nothing's guaranteed. Two is I put very little weight on how our competitors do because we're all running things so differently. This isn't a world where you have a million funds that are closeted next to the S&P 500 and trying to add 50 basis points of alpha. This is a world where the way we run a beta one vehicle can be so radically different than the way someone else does in terms of the risk taking. So as a concrete example here, DeFi yields are a great example. People read about 100% DeFi yields. I don't believe there's a single 100% DeFi yield today. I can't find it. Risk adjusted. 
So there are absolutely opportunities in DeFi right now that I review daily that yield 150%. Most of those are tricky to access. You can't just click a button and put your money in it. Usually those types of opportunities involve some engineering work where you're doing things called flash loans or folding, this crazy rehypothecation set where you, you might even need a dev on team to do the code to do it. But it's not rocket science. There are hundreds of people in the world that can do that today. But the point is they're taking a set of risks that are incredibly complex and in many cases extreme where they effectively, they might not be taking leveraged beta, but they're taking extremely leveraged smart contract risk. As an example, there's some DeFi strategies that involve taking protocol risk exposure to a dozen separate protocols. You're taking engineering and smart contract risk to 12 separate platforms to earn your yield on one token. You've 12x leveraged your platform risk. But when I look at a competitor's returns, I don't know if they're doing that or not. I don't know how levered their protocol risk is. So I can tell you, I'm very risk averse in DeFi yield farming relative to most crypto native people and funds. And they may be right and I may be wrong. This is subjective. But I look at most of those opportunities and I say, yeah, I see the 160% return. Risk adjusted, I think it's zero, literally zero. We're negative. We come up with our internal estimate of the risk-adjusted return, and then we're trying to allocate. So it's very hard to directly compare ourselves to competitors, even when I'm friends with the competitors and I have a pretty good idea what they're doing. The difference between 2x and 6x leverage that protocol, right? It's like, but I do look at what our competitors are doing. And certainly if a competitor knocks the lights out and does much better than us, I do ask myself, were they doing something we should have been doing? Did they see an opportunity that I missed? Did they implement something that I wish I had implemented? And what can I learn from them? How can I be better? And so I do judge ourselves against competitors in that sense. Are we making the best use of the opportunity set in front of us within a given mandate that we can be? It's much more of a qualitative than a quantitative assessment. And then lastly, I have a benchmark in my head of what I think we should be capable of for a given opportunity set, given our skill set and our resources. Very, very often I'll talk to my team and I'll say, look, guys, our investors think we hit it out of the park on this. I think we failed. Given what we knew and the resources we had, we should have produced 200% more alpha than we did. Our investors may be happy. We may have beaten every competitor. And I don't mean this hypothetically. We could have and should have done better. It's those three benchmarks. It's a qualitative combination of all three. I'm really curious to think about when you guys were funded, I believe you guys had a lot of venture capital come into the fund when you were originally founding. Is that right? VC partners and VC funds. I think the reason why that's an interesting set is when I think about managing money professionally, I never had to tell someone there might be a protocol risk, meaning the money might just disappear, that I was offered an 80% return. It looks great relative to other risks, but then the protocol had a hack and the money went away. How has your investor base, to the point that you could discuss how the investors have changed? And when you're explaining this type of risk, I can imagine that might continue to keep people out of giving you money. I find it painful as coming from a TradFi portfolio management background that most TradFi portfolio managers don't really believe in CAPM or what they're taught. They don't really believe in the risk framework that idiosyncratic risk that's diversifiable shouldn't be viewed as risk, that it's purely sizing. I'm not saying anything interesting or new. This is Finance 101. You only care about portfolio level risk. You as an investor should not expect to be compensated for idiosyncratic risk because it can be diversified away. So from the investment side, it's not a source of return. And from the portfolio manager side, it's not a source of risk if you have diversified it away. When you're looking at an investment, if you know you can fully diversify away the risk, or by fully, I mean that risk is 2% of your portfolio's risk, then it's just a sizing question. 
So I always used to cringe. I hear this much less frequently now, but I always used to cringe when someone would say, we think Bitcoin may be the highest expected value thing we could put in our portfolio, but it's too risky. Because what that says to me is either they have no business in TradFi in a position of authority over a portfolio, or what they're really saying is I care more about my career risk or the optics risk than I do about the return and the risk of the portfolio. Either way, it's a bad statement. I'll flesh that out, be really clear with this. So in 2017, I was, uh, at least for the first half, I was at the University of Chicago Office of Investments, and I was talking to all the endowments about everything, including crypto. And a really common refrain across the endowments was a huge percentage of the senior management owned Bitcoin. Most of the CIOs and managing directors of the top 10 endowments told me that they personally owned a ton of Bitcoin. And in some cases, it was a huge percentage of their net worth. So I won't name the CIOs, but imagine the CIO of a top five endowment saying, I put 5% of my net worth into Bitcoin a few years ago because Bitcoin has increased. It's now 50% and I'm holding it because I'm that bullish, but I won't put my endowment in it. To me, that's unethical. I don't fault the CIO necessarily, but it's a structure that produces an unethical conflict of interest. If you as the CIO are so bullish on an asset that you're willing to put half of your net worth into it, but you won't put your investors into it, that is an unethical conflict of interest that has no basis in finance. To the extent Bitcoin is a volatile and risky asset that could go to zero, that's a sizing question. If you believe that it is relatively uncorrelated to your portfolio, and I keep using the word relatively because Bitcoin is not zero correlation. I'm not claiming it is, but it's less correlated to the equities in your book than convertible bonds. It's less correlated to the equities in your book, probably than real estate. Maybe that's debatable, but point is it's certainly less correlated to the equities in your book than another equity. To the extent that you have a book that is, say, 50% public equities, selling 1% of that equity and putting it into Bitcoin, based on the facts, it de-risks your portfolio. It lowers the risk of the portfolio and increases the suspected value. That is the holy grail of a portfolio manager. Basically, if you didn't want to own Bitcoin, either today or in 2017, totally rational, but you have to make the argument that it will reduce the risk-adjusted return of your portfolio. So you have to believe that it is a lower expected value than the average of your portfolio which is certainly plausible. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that view. That's a subjective view and it may be the right one. But you can't say, I think Bitcoin would raise the expected value of my portfolio and reduce its risk due to most of the sources of risk being idiosyncratic and non-beta, and then not put in your portfolio at some size. It's just logically inconsistent. I agree. I think it probably comes down to, because we were talking about them before, when Clareman talks about where there's inefficiencies, one of the largest ones is career risk. The endowment manager that has that position, it's a fear of the career risk. So have you seen the top five endowments move into this space and the people you were pitching in 17 all tell you this is now part of the endowment or are we still at a transition phase? I don't know if any of them have crypto directly. Most of those endowments have almost no direct ownership of anything. They're mostly fund of funds models. They have invested in crypto native funds. Many endowments in 2018 invested in Paradigm. I'm friends with that team. They're a great team. And they are a hybrid. I'm actually not sure the exact vehicles they offer today. In 2018, what the endowments invested in was kind of hybrid VC vehicle. It was an interesting structure. And I, I think a very thoughtful one by that team of trying to create the right structure for the opportunity set and doing some innovating on that regard. I was not at all surprised at the path that took having been in the endowment world that Pitching your investment committee, your board, the president of your university on what is effectively a change in mandate that we're going to be buying this new thing. We're not even sure what the asset class is or where it fits or what we want to directly own it is a much, much, much heavier bureaucratic lift and career risk lift and reputational 
than investing in the next A16Z fund that is just the next fintech fund. It just happens that the fintech is crypto. Basically, there's no new mandate there. When BlockTower thinks about building products, we think about it first from the strategy sense. What can we do well? What can we execute on? What can we earn above market returns on? What can we produce alpha on? But then we do think about it from the financial product sense of how does this fit into someone's existing hierarchy portfolio bureaucracy? And how does it get over the finish line at an institution? I'm no stranger to the bureaucracy where you have people running individual fiefdoms. You have someone running the hedge fund book, someone running the VC book. A product needs to fit in one of those buckets. Otherwise, it's very hard for an endowment to invest. The head of a hedge fund bucket at one endowment once told me, all else equal, he will actually negotiate for longer lockups. So let's say there's a vehicle that offers quarterly liquidity. He would prefer all else equal to lock up for three years which makes no sense. Why would you sell a liquidity option for free? But it makes total sense within the bureaucracy of an endowment. What he said was, I think the endowment will produce better long-term returns if we protect ourselves from the stupid bureaucratic decision-making, panicking after an asset class has collapsed. It's not at all a surprise that endowments and now pensions are primarily allocating through funds. There's no surprise there. And I think that is the path to mainstream adoption, whether it's ETFs, whether it's fund vehicles, whether it's institutional custodians like Fidelity getting in the game two years ago, all of or three years ago, all of that stuff has been critical to enabling institutions and individuals that don't want to be directly interacting with an engineering asset to have exposure with comfort. We touched a lot there. I guess one thing I wanted to think about was when you think about these hybrid models or earlier, we talked about the A16Z equity model and then this other world that wants to do tokens. I'm sure you've been presented investments. I've seen them as an angel where a company comes to you and says, we've got equity, we've got tokens. And I'm curious how you think about the idea of ownership and control. You made a tweet about this coming out of the Jack Web3 is controlled by VCs. And I didn't totally understand. I've been struggling with what does that mean? I own the token but I don't own the equity. My instinct is just to buy both, but I don't know how to think about that as an investment. It's a really interesting nuanced question without a simple answer. I can share some of my mental models around it, but it's something I think about every day. And I certainly think very hard about whenever we see a deal like that, that we have to choose how we can allocate. There's the first principles thinking. We're looking at a project. We think value will be created. Where will that value accrue? It can differ depending on the project. So in some business models where you have a protocol, you have a token, and you have a company that is offering associated services, in some cases, I look at that and I say, you know, I think the protocol is going to be a commodity, basically. I don't think that token will have much value. But I think the ancillary services the company intends to offer around this is really where the value lies. And that's where the value is going to be captured. So I really want equity in the company. In other cases, it's the opposite, where I'll use the term business model, even though we have to stretch it a little bit. In some cases, it's the opposite, where you may have a team and a company that is trying to create value within their ecosystem to produce network effects, to drive a protocol, to get to a sufficient stage where it can be standalone, but where I really think the value is going to accrue to the protocol and to the tokens of that protocol. I wouldn't invest in the company doing the ancillary services, but the presence of the company. So very, very often with crypto projects, you have a long-term value vision. I'll use Peter Thiel's zero to one framing on this. You have a long-term value proposition that requires network effects. And there's no clear way to get there. So using a really simple analogy, it's like we can use fax machines or email or electric cars, almost any network effect driven kind of thing. How do you get the first ever person to use the product? How do you convince someone to get the first fax machine or the fifth? No one else has a fax machine to receive the faxes. Basically what email is at maturity, which is everyone in the world basically has an email address and we can all communicate. 
you don't have to sell someone on having an email address. It's a very different value proposition than it was in the first 10 years, where less than 2% of the world had an email address. And so you need to bridge that gap somehow. And very, very often, if the long-term value proposition is a decentralized protocol or a decentralized marketplace, you still need a centralized team to bootstrap, to get you to the point that there are decentralized value propositions and network effects. And so very often, I'll look at it and say, I'm really happy there's a centralized company with equity that's going to be pushing this forward, that's going to be driving value. But I think the value will accrue to the token. That's kind of a non-answer because it's just in my head, it's very case-specific, case-dependent. When I have doubt, I do try to invest in both because I want to be aligned with the team. I don't want to be worrying about, is the team going to get rich and my investors don't off of the success? So I like alignment. I like owning whatever the team owns that's behind the project. But there are cases where I will put my foot down and say, you guys, 80% of your economic exposure is equity. I don't care. I want the tokens or vice versa. Thinking about the assets that you can participate in. I think about coins generally, which is a big topic, but you got blockchains, then you have DeFi, and you have NFTs. I'm sure these are really complex questions, but for me, something happened in reverse. I played with crypto, then I saw DeFi, but NFTs were really where I thought this was going to go mainstream because I'm not a blockchain engineer. I didn't learn cryptography. I didn't spend the time doing it. DeFi to me seemed like an unregulated area that was really interesting to play with, but it wasn't going to be something my friends were going to do. But the minute Top Shot came around, I was like, this is going to be obviously adopted. And that was a big bet. I'm seeing it in reverse now. When you think about those different asset classes, how do you think about mental frameworks to value them? I have a couple of follow-ups, but let's start with that. Top Shot is such a great example. I framed it both in my head and publicly exactly the same way that I actually call that the first project to go mainstream. And this is qualitative and subjective, impossible to define. But what I meant by that was Top Shot had at least a couple hundred thousand users who didn't think of it as crypto, who didn't care about crypto, who thought of it as MBA collectibles. And I think that was the first use case in crypto that got more than 10,000 people thinking that way. Everything else in crypto up to that point had been, oh, this is a crypto game. And the people playing it are crypto people who are looking for a game they can play in crypto. But the crypto games were generally not appealing to non-crypto people. They were basically good enough games for someone who's, who's a passionate crypto hobbyist to play with, but not good enough to cause someone to want to play with it if they weren't already into crypto. Part of that was the friction around UXs. If a friend says, Ari, you should check out this awesome game. It's just a great game. If doing so requires that I learn how to use crypto, that I have to onboard to MetaMask and get a wallet and go to Coinbase and buy crypto, and that's a lot more friction than I want to do to just play a game if I wasn't already interested in crypto, right? So Top Shot, they solved the UX problem enough that people didn't have to really think they were even using crypto to be able to do it. So I think that was a very, very meaningful milestone. And we will see more and more of that. My thesis in 2017 was that the two use cases that would bring crypto mainstream first would be NFTs and games. I was directionally spot on, but I definitely got the timing on some of that wrong. Like I've been very unpleasantly surprised at how slow crypto gaming has been to pick up. We're just gaming that incorporates crypto. It is coming. It will happen. Obviously, now it's the sexiest theme in the world. And at least if you're in crypto and you, you see the decks and the pitches and the VC excitement, it's incredibly sexy. And all the Tiger Globals and KOTUs and all those guys are throwing money at every crypto game right now. So we're probably a year or two years away from really, really good crypto games and that getting mainstream adoption. So it is happening. But it was substantially slower than I anticipated, which of course, as an investor, timing matters. It wasn't a surprise. The reason NFTs were the first to really go mainstream was because you're less sensitive to the technology. Some of these NFTs, of course, have insane financial value. 
in some cases, truly insane and unsustainable. But someone who wants to buy a piece of art, they're not trusting it with their life savings necessarily. They buy a $100 work of art. It's okay if there's a risk of bugs. You evaluate a work of art very differently than you evaluate a bank account or a doctor or a piece of medical equipment. So it's lower stakes. And that means that we don't need to be as well vetted on the engineering side. And similarly, it's okay if the UX is a little bit scary because if someone clicks a button and loses a $50 piece of art, that's very different than clicking a button and losing their life savings. I think all those were the reasons why NFTs were one of the first to go mainstream. DeFi went super parabolic and generated hundreds of billions of dollars of value very quickly. But most of that was within the crypto native crowd because crypto people were willing to risk their life savings on a click of a button on relatively new untested software. Most people aren't. At this moment, if my parents told me, hey, Ari, we were thinking of doing a loan on Aave, I would say, are you crazy? Don't. Not because Aave itself is necessarily risky, although it's certainly much riskier than TradFi still today, but because I'd be terrified my parents would make a basic mistake in how they interact with it and lose all their money. The UX is that bad, that bad for a TradFi person that I wouldn't be confident sitting down with my parents and spending 30 minutes teaching that. And my parents are very smart people, by the way. They're actually not the best example. They're both pretty tech savvy, but not tech savvy enough to risk a chunk of their life savings on a DeFi platform. I think DeFi will gradually go more and more mainstream as we build out better UX, more proven financial primitives as building blocks. And we are getting there. So a lot of the blue chip DeFi protocols are right now in the process of rolling out enterprise DeFi. And we are seeing even banks on board tentatively, carefully with tiny dollar amounts. But no one is yet thinking about that stuff as financial rails. It's experimental. It's alpha software. It's things to do small test cases on with carefully compartmentalized capital. It's not something where you would say, sure, let's move $100 million the way we would a wire. I do see a relatively linear path from here to there. Relatively linear. I expect some choppiness there. It's a big leap for people to trust their financial life to new code, to get non-crypto people, non-VCs to think that way. We're not going to change the world. We're going to bring the world trusted financial software. And it's largely a function of time. The longer this stuff works, the longer it's used by scale. Basically, people like us start using it and trusting it with a billion dollars. And then people like KOTU and Cerberus and then JP Morgan, and then your mom and dad will. Once JP Morgan is trusting the stuff with tens of billions, then grandma can. A follow-up would be, I think a lot of things in this market, Bitcoin's been around for 11, 12 years now, but a lot of these cycles are narratives. Like I saw this happen and then they're pattern recognizing. So there was this notion of crypto and everyone's working on crypto. And then you had the ICO phase and then you had DeFi summer, which was a huge boom in 20. And then NFT summer kind of followed it. And I think where you've seen this parabolic rise in NFTs, a lot of the DeFi people that might have made a lot of money also, if you've never sold it, could have lost a lot on the way down. Do you see parallels between the DeFi cycle and the NFT cycle? Or does it feel like a different group of people to you? I'll take a slight step back just for two sentences and then dive into the meat of it. So something that I think is surprisingly poorly understood, even in TradFi, is cross-asset class correlation. When I was at the endowment, I got pitched by both CIOs of endowments and fund managers that something like, for example, convertible bond ARB is zero beta. Or an even more comical example, a lot of investors 15, 20 years ago would say with a straight face that VC is low beta of the S&P 500. And they would say that because literally what they were doing was they were taking their quarterly reported financial statements from Sequoia, and they were doing a linear regression against the S&P 500. What that fails to account for is, one, you're comparing quarterly data points to daily. 
And using doing quarterly to quarterly messes things up when you have large volatility on shorter timeframes. You're not actually capturing the risk. But two, the much bigger effect is illiquid assets are extremely systematically mismarked in a way that can be pretty well quantified. And I actually did. I spent a few months on a project at UChicago, and this was just for internal purposes. We were trying to quantify the beta of our VC portfolio and trying to be able to model and anticipate the lag in markups and markdowns. I did this work. This was maybe six years ago. I don't remember the exact numbers, but basically the conclusion of the work was we were able to predict future VC marks of our portfolio with the following model. We do a linear regression to current S&P performance and add two lag variables, one quarter lag and two quarter lag. And we applied a weight to each one. And it was very, very roughly something like 50% most recent quarter performance 30% the one before that, 20% the one before that. So what that model tells you is that basically if the S&P 500 doubles and then sits, VCs will first mark up their books by, I'm oversimplifying, but call it 50% the first quarter, then 30% the next quarter, then 20% the next quarter, and then it's fairly marked. They're not trying to consciously manipulate marks. They're being conservative on the way up and they're reluctant to mark down. Similarly, if the S&P crashes 50%, the VCs will say to themselves, hey, I know my portfolio companies, they're still doing fine. There's a lag until you have comps. So private deals happen in that new regime. So what ends up happening is the VCs will say, hey, this stuff isn't impaired. And then you'll start getting comps where deals are happening at much lower valuations, because of course, that's what's going to happen because public equities are down 50%, everything's going to be cheaper. And so then stuff gets marked down gradually. So I say all this to say that illiquid assets Investors have to be very thoughtful about the marks and not take the marks literally and understand that there is this lag effect in illiquid asset marks that heavily affects how they should think about the correlations across asset class, another variable. Why in the financial crisis did everything fall, including gold and including things like off-the-run treasury bonds? There's a few reasons. One, psychological animal spirits. When people get scared, when people think fundamentally the world is a scarier place, that their human capital is scarier, their future earnings are potentially lower. People just get scared in both a quantitative and qualitative sense, and they reprice everything down, including potentially even things like gold and off their own treasuries. Two, there's a wealth effect. So not only do they feel poorer, if investors around the world all hold a model portfolio and equities fall 50%, The default is that they will rebalance. They will rebalance. So there's both a passive rebalancing effect to the extent they have a target model portfolio. They're going to naturally be selling the stuff that fell less and buying the stuff that fell more. And two, there's an active rebalancing effect that if S&P fell 50% and their macro investments didn't move and they think there's value, they're going to redeem from the macro funds that didn't lose to buy value. So a painful irony of fund managers in 2008, for example, was many of the funds that lost lease faced the biggest redemptions. Because if you're Chicago Endowment and you fundamentally like the manager, maybe you think the manager messed up, but it doesn't matter. Your forward-looking expectation of two managers is identical. One just lost 80%, one just made 10%. It's actually natural that you're going to redeem from the manager who's up and give it to the manager who's down because you think the manager who's down, their asset class, their strategy is now at an ideal entry. And so the managers who outperformed in many cases face bigger redemptions than those who lost the most because the manager's down 80%. It's easy to tell yourself, it can only mean revert from here. If I still like the manager, it's only up from here. They just had their worst performance of a decade. Now's the right time to be allocated. To bring this back to crypto. Crypto portfolios are relatively concentrated. It's basically crypto is held by people who own crypto broadly. What I mean by that is the people who own Ethereum are mostly the same people who own 
AVAX and Luna and Solana. It's crypto funds like us, it's angel investors, it's VCs. When Solana collapses, basically all of the effects I just described apply to people like me, and I end up creating a correlation effect in my trading. And this is true of most people in crypto. That is diminishing over time. Every few years, we see secularly rising dispersion, secularly falling correlation. For a lot of reasons, one of them being we are starting to get a more diverse investor base, like with Topshot. So an investor who doesn't own Bitcoin or Ethereum, who thinks of what they're buying, not as crypto, but as an MBA collectible, they're not going to reprice their MBA collectible just because Ethereum and Bitcoin are down 50%. Why would they? The assets are unrelated. One is an MBA collectible. One is a cryptocurrency commodity or fuel for a global uh, world computer. There's no economic connection between the two in terms of the fundamentals. There's just nothing connecting them. I think as that increases, as we get an increasing diversity in the allocator base who are betting on different themes, four years ago, you didn't have sector-specific crypto funds. There wasn't a single one to my knowledge in existence. You didn't have an NFT fund. You didn't have DeFi funds. Maybe you had Bitcoin-only funds. But other than that, you didn't have decentralized file storage funds. You had people who wanted to allocate to crypto. That was the mandate of almost every crypto investor and allocator and how people thought. Today, you now have people raising NFT funds. That fund is not going to sell NFTs to buy Bitcoin. And you have investors, you have individuals who are also thinking in that way. They're only interested in collectibles. They're only interested in layer ones. They're only interested in store value. It makes sense that we should see correlations fall over time. But I always annoy people in TradFi by saying we're still in a world where correlations are one in a collapse. I was saying that in 2006, by the way, and I got a lot more pushback back then. Now that's kind of consensus. But in 2006, people were saying, no, Ari, we haven't seen that kind of correlation one for 20 years now and blah, blah, blah. Like 1999 was almost a counterexample or 2000 where we had tech collapsed much, much more than non-tech. I still think we're in a correlation one world in extreme left tail events and crypto absolutely still is that. If you tell me that Bitcoin is down 95% tomorrow... I would bet that crypto as a whole is down at least 95%. It is going to be the extremely rare asset that is not down at least 80. How are you looking at the correlation between traditional assets and crypto? How much of your process is that? We certainly pay attention to it. I'd say it's pretty rare that we make forward-looking bets on that basis. It ebbs and flows. So I think this is very narrative-driven. There have been points in the last four years where, for example, we noticed simultaneous to us seeing people start talking about a correlation between the yuan USD exchange rate and the Bitcoin price in dollar terms. And this was, I think, maybe late 2018, first half of 2019. Basically, Chinese retail were the marginal Bitcoin trader. They were a large percentage of Bitcoin volume, and they were kind of the marginal price setter. There was a narrative in China at the time that you want to buy Bitcoin as a hedge for the yuan. Basically, when Chinese retail became more bullish on the yuan, they would sell Bitcoin. And when they were more bearish on the yuan, they would buy it. And so the yuan USD rate was driving Bitcoin price to some degree. And so we were paying attention to it. It's driving things. It doesn't today. So at least last time I looked at it, the correlation was zero between Yuan USD and Bitcoin. That's not driving the Bitcoin price. I look at it, but much more passively. Right now, Bitcoin is certainly acting like a risk asset. It's more correlated to equities than gold right now. My simplest macro mental model is that Bitcoin is two-thirds S&P, one-third gold. That is the starting point that I approach this with. I'm not at all dogmatic about that. I'm not saying it should be that. Basically, that is how it's been acting on average for the last three years, sometimes with tighter correlation to that, sometimes with less. And I think that does make some sense intuitively. And I do think it's reasonable to expect that as a general baseline, as a steady state, something like that. 
I'm very, very ready to throw that away, by the way. But until the market tells me that's the wrong baseline, that's kind of the one I'm going with. And that makes sense intuitively in that crypto is a risk asset. Much of its value is speculative and people are speculating on what it will do and will be. It's very much supply and demand driven. It is extremely risky. And so people are much more willing to allocate more to crypto when they're more risk tolerant. Basically, when they're moving down a risk curve, they go from saying, I want to be in public equities. I want to be in private equities and private debt, public equities, public debt, private equity, private debt. Basically, crypto is further along the risk curve than that. So in a world where people are more risk tolerant, so the equity piece makes very, very intuitive sense. Also, of course, public equities are fairly correlated to money printing and that same supply and demand dynamic. And then gold adds in two pieces. One is actually the less important one, which is inflation expectations. I actually think that's more from the equity side. Gold is not correlated to inflation historically, and that's just a fact. Warren Buffett wrote an essay about this in the early 70s, that people like to talk about gold as an inflation hedge, but it's never been in history. And since Buffett wrote that essay, it has a near zero correlation to inflation. Gold is best modeled as a proxy for real interest rates. And Bitcoin as a non-yielding asset intuitively should have a similar sensitivity to real interest rates as gold for the same reason. Real interest rates can be framed as the opportunity cost of capital. The lower that opportunity cost of capital is, the more you're willing to pay for non-yielding assets. It's hard to create a real quantitative model that isn't purely empirical. It's hard to like actually come up with numbers for what those relationships should be, except by just saying this is how the market has acted in the past. I can tell you on my screen, typical trader screen, I've got a bunch of assets and charts that I'm monitoring. And on my TradFi side, I've got S&P 500, Kospi, Nikkei, some benchmark for like global equities generally. I forget which one I have on my screen. 10-year yields, gold, silver, and copper. There have been brief periods where copper seemed to have some correlation to Bitcoin. I don't think it fundamentally necessarily should at all. That's probably the odd man out. Talk about cycle. Back in when you started Block Tower, you made a huge bet. You've publicly said you put 90% of your wealth in crypto. And you talked about where we are in the cycle. And at the end of this bull run, that number would be a lot less. I think it's a very interesting point because when I talk to other crypto managers, they're never net short. This is their life's mission and just their assets will be in crypto. You seem a lot more tactical at how you think about investing and risk and return, which I like. Give me a sense of the cycle, where we are in the cycle, and how you're thinking about your allocation to crypto. Where we are in the cycle, I don't know. There are some times where I have high conviction. As an investor, most of the time on most things, I have no opinion. And I don't need to. I'm not a pundit. I'm not a prognosticator. I'm an investor. So I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on this asset. I don't have an opinion on this cryptocurrency. Right now, I have a lot of mental models that I'm working off of. And I could talk to you for two hours about different market cycle models. But the summary of that is I don't know. And so I can tell you right now, the way I'm positioning our portfolio for investing and trading is I'm much more focused on generating idiosyncratic alpha, trying to make money, trying to position the portfolio in ways where I'm betting on the things I'm high conviction on and not on the things I'm not. And so that means running at lower betas generally. And that isn't necessarily a bear statement. It's just why take beta risk if you're not confident you're getting compensated for it. I'll say this explicitly. I have zero opinion on the direction of crypto in the next month. I think about this every day, every few hours. My team, we talk about it literally every morning at 9am and every evening at 5pm with I have a co-PM on one of our vehicles, and he and I debate this and talk about it And every day. Right now, my answer is I have zero opinion on the next month. And so why would I be taking tons of beta risk with no opinion? Zooming out a little bit, I'm not a macro manager. I was actually a macro trader professionally for a bit, but I've been out of that world for almost eight years now. I'm not equipped to opine on macro. With that said, I am certainly following it. 
I do have a background in it. What I will say is I would bet on volatile macro going forward. Two years ago, I was extremely confident. I was willing to basically make a very, very aggressive bet that we were in for a inflationary growth stage in the next two years. And I positioned very aggressively around that macro bet. Today, I have no opinion on the macro direction near term over the next year. I have no idea if we're in for a deflationary world or inflationary on a one-year time frame. It's very path-dependent on what central bankers do and even what legislatures do around passing fiscal stimulus. And I just don't have an opinion. The way Wall Street's pricing it is as good as I can do. The one thing I would say, though, is there's huge dispersion in the possible outcomes. And basically, that volatility in macro produces a wide range of outcomes in crypto. So if you tell me, for example, the public equities are up 100% in the next year, it's almost guaranteed that crypto will be up. Not guaranteed, nothing's guaranteed, but I would be extremely caught. And if you tell me equities are down 50%, crypto is almost certainly down too. And so because I see a very wide range of outcomes in interest rates, inflation, equities, I'm wary of basically the idiosyncratic crypto stuff that I'm an expert on, that I'm, or at least that I'm spending all of my time on. That stuff could get lost in the noise, in the macro noise. Everything about crypto is going great over the next year. If equities are down 50%, it won't matter. Crypto won't do well. It might outperform equities. Maybe it's only down 10%, but it won't do well. Given that extremely volatile, wide range of possible futures and outcomes, I think it makes sense to be a little bit more risk-averse now, a little more focused on the idiosyncratic alpha side than trying to capture the beta. So all of that, my views could change on a dime with new data, new market information, better analysis, but that's the current view. And then in terms of my positioning, personally, I did non-trivially de-risk crypto exposure over the last year. I still have an outrageous amount of crypto exposure. So aside from the fact that I am a founder and equity owner in Block Tower, which is a crypto firm. I don't think of this as part of my net worth, but as a major equity owner in that, in theory, 95% of my net worth is that equity. In my head, that's worth zero. But the reality is that I have so much exposure to crypto through Block Tower. If I was advising a third party as a financial advisor, I would say 95% of your net worth is in the equity of a crypto firm. You should have zero additional crypto exposure. It'd be crazy to own any crypto at all. But I am extremely passionate about the industry. I am long-term a Super Bowl. I very much believe this is a transformative new industry that basically the worst case scenario in my head is that we're right now in something like the year 2000 for tech. And that the worst case scenario is that we have a really ugly winter where everything is repriced lower and that it's five years to recover current valuations. To be clear, that's my worst case scenario. That's my bottom 10th decile would like to think I was a little more mature on, a little less naive on than a lot of people in crypto. There is a commercial element to this. Using the analogy of the hedge fund managing director who said, I think the endowments returns will be better if we protect ourselves from making bad decisions that are not investment related. I think the same way as a business operator. I and my team, here's the scenario. We get that horrible bear market. Our assets under management have collapsed, both from organic fall and likely redemptions. And the value of the firm has fallen. I am an investor in all of our funds and everything we do. I think that's just proper for alignment of interest. It's obviously the signaling that our investors want. And I'm happy to do it because we won't launch a vehicle. Literally, my litmus test for us launching a product is if I, if I don't want to put money into it, it's not a product I want to give to the world. That's my litmus test, quite honestly. I want to build products that I want and that I want to invest in. So I'm an investor in everything. In the bad scenario, it's a triple whammy. It's assets fall. The business's cash flows fall, our LP interests as individuals fall, 
and any direct crypto that we held outside of Block Tower falls. And we have to be worrying about our jobs and our human capital. In a five-year crypto winter, my team is going to be worrying about, man, if Block Tower doesn't survive this, can I get hired anywhere? Everyone's downsizing. I think that's extremely negative and unproductive to being a great investor and trader. You can't be a great investor and trader if you have to worry about, this is the classic worrying about short-term performance. Someone like a Buffett says, I can be a better investor if I don't have to optimize for quarterly marks. I very much believe that and feel that if I have to be laser focused on quarterly returns, I'm going to be a worse investor, all else equal. To the extent that it changes my investment decisions at all, it's a negative. Our investors should have been mad at me for being over-allocated because what they should have thought is this is a 2% of our portfolio allocation to crypto or 5%. This is the risk bucket. This is the far right tail. We want Ari to swing for the fences. To someone who puts 2% of their net worth into crypto via a crypto fund, they shouldn't want the manager to be risk managing aggressively because the difference between a down 20% and down 40% outcome is completely irrelevant to their portfolio. The difference between a 5X and a 10X is very substantial. So I was so exposed to crypto. I started feeling this last year more acutely that I actually, for the first time ever running Block Tower, I had the thought, man, I feel overexposed to crypto given my current market views and my current levels of bullishness and all that. And I started thinking, man, should I have one of our vehicles reduce exposure? And as soon as I thought that, I said, man, this is terrible. I can't be misaligned with our investors. And I feel misaligned. I feel too risk averse relative to the mandate. I'm still a very, very large investor in our funds, both as a percentage of my net worth and of the vehicles themselves. But that's no longer a consideration at all for me. I feel perfectly aligned. And that's what matters. What matters is that I'm positioned to execute as best trader investor I can be, and then my team, similarly, that we maximize the outcome given our abilities. So we'd like to end these with a two-part question. What are you most excited to see built over the next six months? And then just a bit longer with your longer-term time frame. what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? My six-month answer is the easier one. And this is great to kind of leave as a little bit of a dangling piece of interest for the listeners. I'm incredibly excited about a theme that I'll call real-world lending, which is kind of a subsector of enterprise DeFi. Enterprise DeFi is an AML KYC, fully legal, fully compliant version of DeFi. And that's being built right now. I'm extremely convicted that this is going to be a very big theme very soon in every way, both that it's going to be getting hype and it's going to create a ton of value. And that first killer app and use case is doing real-world loans, so corporate bonds, private debt, mortgages, the world of direct lending and also revolving credit lines for companies like Pipe and Yield Street, these fintech 2.0 companies that are themselves underwriters through DeFi platforms. And there's a lot of different value propositions for this. And it's so early that we're still working on the mental models of even what is this. So long-term, this disintermediates the TradFi world where if you own a corporate bond, it goes through like seven intermediaries to receive a cash flow that those seven intermediaries often produce errors. So I've spent a lot of the last three months talking to credit fund managers and banks. They share with me their pain points. They spend a lot of time when one of those intermediaries just messes up a cash flow. The money's not lost. It gets worked out. But you have these massive back and middle offices and entire industries that really are just extract a rent without providing meaningful value because of this incredibly arcane and obsolete system that we have that basically is a 70-year-old system. So all of that gets disintermediated, which drastically reduces middle and back office costs. It increases transparency and whatever people want can be made transparent on blockchain. 
auditability. So for example, right now, the US government has no idea who owns a treasury bond because they're rehypothecated 30 times. The US government doesn't even have a way of answering the question. So if there's a specific QCIP and the US government wants to know who owns that treasury bond, they literally have to start reaching out to prime brokers who then reach out to brokers who then eventually come up with a name. No one wants that. The regulators hate that. The regulators have no idea. Regulators do like an insider trading investigation. It's like months for them to even uncover the name of who traded the stock because the stock wasn't held in the person's name, right? Because we have the whole depository core system. So those are long-term ones, but none of those will exist for the next three years. That's the long-term stuff. Near-term, the value proposition is lower friction doing idiosyncratic loans that are not fungible, the stuff that we can't put into ETFs and ETNs, things like million-dollar construction loans. People are building the infrastructure to much lower friction in all regards, but within the existing legal structure, still fully relying on the current legal system and current contract system. If right now I wanted to loan you a million dollars for a construction loan, you and I would be able to arrange that using one of these DeFi platforms in five minutes instead of how else would we do it with TradFi? It would probably be a multi-week process. So I'm super excited about that. I think in six months, if we talk, you will have heard of this and it will be something that is clearly gaining steam. To be clear, this is not going to disrupt Wall Street in the next six months. Wall Street won't notice. I think it's going to go zero to one in like a year or two. So yeah, super excited about that. And then six years, I'd say probably DAOs, where I think it's going to disappoint a lot of people in crypto that DAOs today are really just proofs of concept. I actually think there's almost no value proposition for them yet, but I am absolutely a complete believer that they're going to change the world. DAOs eliminate the friction of corporate formation. And another way of saying that is DAOs I shouldn't say eliminate. They dramatically, by a factor of at least 10, possibly 100, reduce the friction of human economic coordination. So right now, if you and three buddies want to start working on a project together and want to do it in a financially competent sense, where you're going to have customers, you're going to do all this stuff, you'd spin up an LLC, you'd open a bank account for that LLC, you would establish payroll, you would get employment contracts. All of that is a couple of weeks of work at a bare minimum. And if you're doing anything more complex, it's probably months. Just hiring an employee and onboarding them to payroll and having an employment contract takes effort. The best example I can give for this is imagine a conversation at a company like yours or mine where we say, we really need a team of 10 people for a month. Let's just hire 10 people. You never have that conversation because hiring 10 people for a month is just too high friction due to the laws, the corporate structure, all of that. But imagine if you could. Imagine if you could seamlessly create companies with whatever variables you want, whatever levers you want. The specifics of the contracts are automatically enforced by a smart contracts. You could sell legal contracts. You could still have a written employment contract that falls under US law. But the point is, it could be a very simple bare bones contract that only comes up if there's litigation. That becomes the backstop, not the operating agreement, not the operating process of the company. And so we could literally hire 10 people from anywhere around the world, not worrying about where they're located. I mean, think about even H1 issues and visa issues and all that nonsense that prevents seamless cross-border hiring. So I'm imagining a world, and I don't know if this is in six years, maybe this is 10, maybe it's 20 years, but I think in six years, we'll have working proofs of concept where someone can spin up a thousand person company in four hours and dissolve it a week later and everyone's happy. What kind of new economic coordination, new activity, new human endeavors does that unlock? It's hard to anticipate. It's kind of like saying, like, how will the world change by having email, instant free global communication? It's very hard to predict how innovators and entrepreneurs are going to make use of that reduced friction. When you reduce friction like that by a factor of 10x, it's always transformative and it always unleashes things that are almost impossible to envision.
What a great spot to end. It's an exciting future, and I appreciate you sharing all your learnings along the way. So thank you very much for your time, Ari. Cheers. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 